good evening and uh, today is the last session of the series and uh, in this series, the second series, I have been speaking on the Buddhist view, meditation and action and just to uh, recap <coughs> what I spoke over the last two sessions. Uh, Buddhist view primarily is the, the primary or the basic fundamental Buddhist view is all compounded things are impermanent emotions are pain, things are devoid of true existence or devoid of self or empty in nature and uh, nirvana or liberation or enlightenment or salvation is beyond extreme. So these are the four uh, pillars of Buddhism or the hallmarks of Buddhism. So these are the four factors that really distinguishes Buddhism from the other faiths, so other wisdom traditions, so to speak. And uh, all compounded things impermanent is uh, at the surface level it is not very difficult to understand and it is a simple uh, natural fact. So there's nothing religious or nothing sophisticated in that all compounded things, all the things that are dependent on their causes and conditions, they don't last forever, they have a limited time frame. So th these things are time-bound. So one day or the other, they will disintegrate and fall up apart. And uh, we see this, we feel this. So everything is within our, within the reach of our perception, the mind. But at a deeper level, all compounded things are impermanent is not just talking about the gross outer, you know, at the surface level, in the nature of things. Basically, all compounded things are impermanent, then Buddha is really, at the deeper level, talking about the dependent, dependent arising, interdependence. So things depend on each other for existence and beings depend on each other for survival. So that we know, we understand that. So in that sense, it is not that difficult to understand, but basically what Buddha is trying to, here when Buddha says all compound things are impermanent, what Buddha is trying to present is <coughs> the 
that impermanence, impermanent, conditioned, assembled, compounded things, they don't have the true, true existence. They can't exist independently. When we say true existence, means the independent existence. So independently being able to withstand. So all the compounded things, they don't have independent existence. So when there is when there is no independent existence, then they are devoid of the true existence. So they, they are devoid of the uh, the inherent basis. So that leads to the the third point. You know, all things are devoid of self or self. Self is a superficial phenomena, so fabricated superficial phenomena, labeled on with reference to the aggregation, the aggregation of, you know, especially the aggregation of the five aggregates, the body, the form, feeling, perception, mental formation, and uh, consciousness. So, if we examine and analyze deeper, then we wouldn't find the self. So we would find and see that self is superficial. It is a constructed phenomenon. And self exists only in the relative. And if we can understand that, then everything exists in the relative. They are time bound, and uh, you know the changes are bound to happen. Then we are ready. And when the changes happen, when transformations happen, especially the, when unwanted things happen, adverse conditions affect us, then we won't, we wouldn't be affected so much if we could really understand and, uh, and accept the fact that all compounded things are impermanent. When we are not able to accept that, then there is this play of emotions all the time. So first we fix it on the things as you know, permanent and we believe and expect things to work forever. And when that doesn't happen, then we are affected. So that's why all emotions are pain. So any kind of emotion, it's a pain. Happiness, unhappiness, good, bad, they're relative. They're temporary, they're advantageous. They're, you know, they are also product of the supporting conditions and causes. So when these supporting causes and conditions retreat, then they will fall apart and the course will change. So we see this happening, but since we are so habituated at looking at things in a different way, in believing that impermanent things are permanent, permanent, then when impermanence really happens, then we are affected. So we need to work on that. You know, this this is the 
kind of understanding we need to develop first in order to follow the path. Then, if we can understand and apply the method and get to the 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 base, the basis, which is the emptiness or the absence of the true nature of phenomena. So you know the true existence of the phenomena. Then we will be free from the emotions, the attacks of the emotions, the effects of the emotions, and all the corresponding uh, things that happen, you know, that come with the emotions, that follow the emotions, and that is referred to or termed as the nirvana. So basically when one attains the wisdom of knowing the reality of things, then emotions disappear, either disappear or they cease to affect you. So they are unimportant. Even if they are there, then when one, you know, once one has the wisdom, then as long as one has the wisdom, then this wisdom work in a positive way. And these are actually explained and practiced in one form of Buddhism, which is mainly practiced in the Himalayas. So, actually originated from India, India and also uh, the Odiyana in those days. And now it's being practiced in the Tibetan form of Buddhism. So there, the emotions are not looked upon as an enemy. They're looked upon as the, the resource that you can bank on. So this is a different kind of subject, but it is also explained in the sutras, not just in the tantra. These are explained in the sutra. There is a sutra called Vimalakirti Sutra. In there, Buddha talks about that. Actually, there are different kinds of sutras. Sutra is spoken by Buddha himself. For example, Vajrati Chidika Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, Buddha spoke himself. And it is a conversation, dialogue between Buddha and his one of his chief disciples, Subhuti. So Subhuti asks questions and Buddha answers. Sometimes Buddha asks questions to Subhuti and Subhuti answers in order to make it clear and clarify the doubt. And some of the sutras are not directly spoken by Buddha, such as <coughs> this Vimalakirti Sutra. It was not directly spoken by Buddha. But Buddha initiated the discussion, and we believe that, Buddhists believe that, uh, the discussion happened due to the blessing of the Buddha. So during this discussion, the whole in the duration of the discussion, Buddha sat in samadhi, meditation, absorption, and this discussion happens. And you know, like here, the main characters, they're not just the bodhisattvas, there's this bodhisattva concept. Also the 
Yunada Arhats, like Shariputra. So they have this conversation. <laughs> and then there's the Heart Sutra, Prajna Paramita, Siddha. That is also a conversation between Shariputra and Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva. So there are different kinds of sutras. <laughs> you know, later on, if you are interested, you can read that. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, you know, we need to use this as a study material. Sometimes, you know, because of the culture and tradition, then we tend to, you know, keep these books on the shelves, and then we go on believing, on making all kinds of beliefs. So that is not right. Actually, there we have these references, these resources. So we need to make use of that. So you can read those. I was just going to <coughs> just mention this. But, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, going to the second, second is the meditation aspect, the practice. So the practice is really the method to uh, actualize the view, the understanding of the view. Actualize or to realize or recognize the view. So help us. So when things are pure, you know, Things are fundamentally, they're basically pure and perfect. But since we don't, un we, we fail to understand, then we have been, you know, confused and lost. So in order to go get back to the, to the original state, then we apply the path, the methods. So the methods, actually, sometimes I think it seems that uh, being, you know, some, some of you are very new here, very difficult to relate to, you know, what is happening when we say meditation practice. Actually, you know, some, some, uh, I'm just going to make a reference so that I think it might make more sense and, uh, and it will be easier to understand what I'm presenting here. Uh, in some of the wisdom traditions, some of the faiths, you know, when we say doing meditation, prayer, practice, then they say that I haven't read all this, like, you know, the Holy Bible or the Quran or the other texts. But they say that when, when they do this practice, they are connecting to the God. You know, they do this practice in order to connect to the God, if I'm not mistaken. So that is one aspect. So they do this practice you know, do the meditation practice or whatever practice in order to connect to the God. God is the kind of the primordial thing, primordial, how to say, the figure in those you know, faith traditions. And in the, the Vedic religion, I think in the Vedic religion there are so many schools, I think school of thoughts. So one school of thoughts is very, uh, popular and prominent uh, even in the, the Buddhist you know tradition. Not that you know <clears throat> they are part of that, but they are a big part of this discussion when we establish the view, the truth. So one is that Samkhya school. One of the Vedic school is the Samkhya school. And Samkhya school they say that, you know, these are all presented in the Buddhist books. 
it's a Buddhist text. So if there's anything, you know, uh, missing or this is that if there's any exaggeration, I'm sorry for that, but I'm just mentioning just to make a reference. So <clears throat> they say that all the phenomena, the outer and the inner phenomena, the, you know, the contents and container, the universe, everything actually, samsara, nirvana, all included in this 25, 25 uh, aspects of the phenomena. So 25, so to speak, the manifestations, they call it in, in Tibetan, in classical, you know, Tibetan, this God, Namjur Nishu So 25. And the first is the, the primal substance. It is translated as the primal substance. It's, they call it the Prakrit, I think. There are two important things here. There's Prakrit and the Purush. Purush is the, the self, actually, basically. So there's the Prakrit then. So Prakrit is the creator. Prakrit creates everything. When the Purush is the one that enjoys, you know, relates to everything, you know, outer and inner world. So when the Purush wants, feels like, you know, uh, connecting or relating to the or connecting to the other phenomena, then, you know, then in other words, the Purush wants to have an activity, so to speak, just to make it simple, then the Prakrit, so Prakrit creates everything, the objective phenomena, subjective phenomena, everything, and that's how the everything functions, you know, the, the world functions. I think it makes sense in the, actually, in some beliefs, I think there's this Nataraja Shiva. Yeah, the Nataraja Shiva is dancing. So the world is actually, you know, the creation, you know, uh, disintegration, everything happens, I think, through that dance of the Nataraja Shiva. So that's one, you know, it's almost a similar there. So, you know, then, how this is how everything functions, there's samsara, nirvana, <laughs> there's basically the samsara functions, you know, that, you know, suffering, emotions, everything here. So, when this practitioner, you know, the, when a rishi does the meditation, the contemplation, and does the meditation, and through meditation, then the, the awareness develops, and slowly this self, that's what they say in this, that the self begins to recognize itself, that it is not the creator, that the self is just merely, you know, the Purush is merely enjoying what's being created by the Prakrit, the prime substance, the primordial creator, basically. So, you know, after many years of meditation, then this slowly, you know, the purifies and in the end, you know, ultimately dissolve, you know, the Purush dissolve into the primary substance, so to speak. And that is the liberation, basically. So that's how they, you know, explain liberation, the nirvana. And in the Buddhism, 
always in a, how to, in how it is explained in the Buddhism. In the Buddhism, we don't explain in that way. We exp, you know, in the Buddhism, things are primarily, you know, primarily or primarily, fundamentally, basically pure. So it's pure, perfect, untainted, untouched, pristine. So because of not understanding, then things have gone wrong and we, we have got lost. And that is samsara, emotions, suffering, everything is happening in the middle. So through this meditation practice, first we need to intellectually establish the basic view. And in order to get to that, because we need to have the confidence, for example, you know, for instance, if you want to go somewhere else, then we need to know about the place, you know, why we are going, what we are going to do, and so on. Then how we do is that, you know, that, that the method that leads to the destination. So first we need to find out the destination where we are going. So through that practice, through the practice of meditation, in the meditation is not just, um, actually, there are so many methods. Everything is, every practice is a method if it is done through the understanding of the basic nature, the view, and uh, the good intention accompanying the understanding of the view. The anything can become a, <coughs> anything can become a method, not just sitting meditation. So basically, these are all included in the in essentialized as the shamatha meditation and the vipassana meditation. So shamatha is to develop the calmness of the mind. So develop the concentration of the mind, and vipassana is to understand the view. So discern the things and get to the view. And through this meditation, then one really connects to the, you know, practically connects to the view and experiences the view practically. And that is called the liberation, that is the nirvana. So in Buddhism, nirvana is not attainment, basically. But for the sake of language, for the sake of communication, then we have to say attainment, you know, the ultimate, the end result, or the attainment. But basically, it's not attainment. I may explain more during the retreat, when, when I go through the, the second turning of the wheel of Dharma. In that, there is these three characteristics. So there's the, the basis or the ground is emptiness, heart is without characteristics, and the result is beyond aspiration. There's nothing to aspire. aspire. And I think uh, there's also a book written by one of the greatest masters or the contemporary masters, Chujim Rinpoche, I think, Journey Without Goal. That's what it is, actually. So when we say, it's called the Delve Debu, in, in, in Tibetan it's called Delve Debu, Delde. So Nirvana or the cessation, as in the, you know, the first turning of the will of Dharma, the cessation, the cessation is the Delve Debu. The result is the absence, the freedom from confusion, freedom from suffering, 
or going beyond suffering, that's it. So you go beyond suffering, go beyond the emotion, go beyond the, the confusion, delusion, that is the result. So there's no, you know, <coughs> how to say, uh, substantially existing result somewhere else. So that is why, you know, the nirvana is beyond extreme. So nirvana you cannot express. There's something called prasnaparamita, the transcendental wisdom. That's the attainment of the transcendental wisdom is the nirvana. In transcendental wisdom we cannot explain. When you really recognize or realize or experience the truth, it is inexpressible. You can't express the color, shape, you know, the dimension. You cannot express that. So the classical example is, you know, experiencing is like a, a dumb person. It's a dumb person uh, tasting as sugar or anything, you know, salt. The person is tasting, but dumb person cannot express. And also, you know, when we explain, for example, salt, what is the taste of salt? You can only taste, you know, explain through negation, you know, negating others. So for example, salt, you know, the taste of the salt is not sweet, not sour, <laughs> only like that. The same in explaining the truth. The truth is explained through negating the extremes, you know, the elaborations, the fabrication, the superficialities. That's how it is explained. The, in the book, one of the greatest Indian masters, Chandrakirti, says that truth can only explained through, you know, by means of example, illustration. It cannot be explained directly. But if you do the meditation, you will gain confidence in that. You will have a glimpse of that meditation. Please, actually, if you would like, please, there is this transcript of uh, my teacher, Zongsa Kinti Rinpoche's uh, teaching given here last year in 2000, in the beginning of 2017. Please read that. There he presents the truth how to approach the truth, how to understand the truth in a more practical, direct manner. Here, the way I'm presenting is from, from the more philosophical you know, aspect. So the approach is, approach is a bit long-winded here. So it, it is kind of the same in the, <coughs> the book, What Makes You the, Not Buddhist. So you can also gather some. That's how it is explained in the, the Shastras. Shastras are the commentaries, commentaries to uh, the words of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, written by the great uh, Indian masters. And also there's the commentary to the Shastras, the commentary on the commentaries by the Tibetan masters. So anyway, I was supposed to uh, talk about this method now, the view meditation. 
So meditation, as I said, so if you have like, for example, uh, you know, when you have extreme pain, the bodily pain, then you take, in order to relieve you know, the pain temporarily, you take the painkiller. So there are so many painkillers as well in this method to relieve from emotions. When you have really strong anger, you can apply the antidote of loving-kindness. Loving-kindness, compassion, but you can only suppress the gross, the most obvi obvious, tangible kind of uh, emotions. But the subtle emotions you have to uproot or destroy using the wisdom. Because this loving-kindness, compassion, there's different kinds of compassion actually, but the, the general kind of compassion, they cannot uproot because they don't contradict with the wrong view. So the method has to contradict with the, the confusion, the emotion, the wrong view. Otherwise the method will not work. So, uh, if you have a very strong desire, then you can contemplate on the, you know, the ugliness of things. So it can work to a certain extent to suppress the gross, obvious emotions, the, the more tangible kind of emotions. Then if, you, if your thoughts are uncontrollable, in uncontrolled thoughts, thought patterns. So you can, <coughs> basically what you can do is to, you know, concentrate on the breathing, you know, the breathing. You can do the breathing exercise and concentrate on that. And uh, then if you have so much ignorance, you know, misunderstanding, confusion, then you need to meditate on the independent, uh, dependent nature of phenomena. And that one is almost like practicing the second one, the more advanced uh, technique, the vipassana. Because to really meditate on the interdependence or the dependent arising, you need to apply that wisdom. Here, <coughs> you need, uh, in the shamatha, you don't apply that, directly apply that wisdom. But it doesn't mean that, you know, it is inferior, this method is inferior to the other method. That kind of, we have this kind of habit of, you know, looking at things, you know, how to say, discriminating. Because when there is one method, and if you find another method, you know, we think that that is better, and then this one is inferior. So it's not like that. Uh, the great Indian master, again, the, the Gujarati master, Shantideva, he said, you know, only through the union of one-pointed concentration, which is shamatha, and the vipassana, 
the discriminating wisdom meditation, the penetrative insight meditation, then only one can cut through the confusion and reach to the state of state beyond and beyond these emotions. So transcend these emotions and confusions. Emotions are emotions are more of a gross form of confusion. So there is a really subtle, you know, confusions, like subtle thoughts, which we don't can't even recognize. <coughs> so these are the methods to work, you know, work through that, the thought patterns, in in order to you know, generate wisdom, the prajna. Prajna is the wisdom that cuts through this misunderstanding, misconception, misbeliefs. So first in order to first in order to be able to apply the method to look into the nature of the phenomena, one needs to settle down, settle the mind. The mind has to be settled. That's where this, you know, uh the practice comes in. So shamatha practice you know, first we need to, you know, learn to sit. For sitting, you can do, you know, not just sitting, you can do standing, sleeping, that's, you know, it's not fixed. But the sitting, it is also said in the teachings, you know, since body and mind are dependent on each other, and they are connected. So, you know, training and disciplining the body will go a long way in generating the wisdom, in knowing the, you know, the nature of the mind. So, for sitting is important, that's why sitting, you know, you have to have a proper posture. I'm not going to talk about, you know, the, the seven points of, you know, this Buddha Virajana sitting. I'm not going to, but you have to strengthen your backbone, the spine, straighten your spine and then, you know, sit at ease, basically relax everything and look, you know, down from the, you know, above the nose, right? gaze, your gaze shouldn't be up. Later on, there are other meditations like Vipassana meditation, you can also do that, but at the moment, if you do that, what happens is the mind will, as I mentioned last night, there are two faults in meditation the two obstacles to meditation. One is agitation, the mind wandering, you know, mind becoming wild. That we need to uh, be conscious of. And there's the thinking, dullness. You know, you become dull, and sometimes people say that your mind become, goes blank. That is also some kind of dullness, because there has to be awareness. When you do the meditation, there has to be awareness. Meditation is not about, you know, there's one young Lama, actually, young Rinpoche, he gave a teaching and on meditation, and he, he's, you know, he, had, he has put it in a very good way, actually. He said, meditation is not the art of emptying the mind. You can't empty the mind. It's impossible, you can't do that. 
you will never be able to do that. We will never be able to empty the mind. It's impossible. We can understand the mind and transform the mind into wisdom, but not empty. So, so the whole point of meditation is to develop awareness. When you are aware of things, whatever is happening, then one can really deal with the, you know, the situation. Since we are not aware, then we get carried away by things. So we become the slave of our own mind. You know? So mind should be brought under control and should be aware. So first sitting, you learn to sit. And then after sitting, once you get used to sitting in you know, a discipline, you can do it together as well. Actually, that is also just sitting is also uh, one form of you know, vipassana meditation. In the vipassana, there are thirty-seven steps. In the in the you know the, in the uh, I think Buddha taught in the second you know discourse, the second major discourse. Rinpoche says in the second conference, second meeting, in the second turning of the wheel of dharma at uh, Rajgir. So 37 steps. And then the, the first four steps, you know, the contemplations, the four contemplations, the four mindfulness practice. Mindfulness of the body first. in Tibetan. So there's the mindfulness of the body. So how do you do it? You sit. You, know, you sit. <laughs> You're not... Uh, uh, engaging your mind at the moment, just learning to sit, you know, just learning to sit and train your body. What happens when you sit? Then when you're like this, then nothing happens. It seems that nothing happens, you know. So as long as, soon as you try to sit, then you feel so many things, you know, the urges, like, you know, eating, wanting to cough, and your phone ringing and wants to want to attend, you know, attend. So these kind of things happen. So there you have to discipline yourself, and you shouldn't give. You have to be aware of that, and just look into that feeling, you know, all these sensations, you know, and then you just, and then there will be sensations. You know, since we we are alive, there will be sensations. You shouldn't give it. And uh, you know, my teacher says you can do three things here. First, you have to blink. Actually, you can't. You know, gaze without blinking until you get used to the blink when necessary. And you have to breathe. You have to breathe. You can't hold the breath. So you try to hold the breath, but you have to breathe normally. And uh, if this, you know, the, the saliva comes into your throat, then you have to, you, know, you can swallow that occasionally, if necessary. These are the three things then. Apart from these three things, then we should try not to do, you know. In the beginning, we should try, you know, doing short sessions. So like three minutes, five minutes, then you can increase actually uh, uh, 
lengthen the duration over time so as you you know get used to so you can do that so sitting first then second is to engage the mind so when you engage the mind then the first is that using the outer object so object of concentration so using the object so you concentrate your mind on the object you can also do it like together with the breathing also but you know you first concentrate on the object look at the object you don't visualize visualize is not meditation here you don't may visualize you don't make anything of this object so let the object as it is so you're trying to you know trying to get to the pure the purest aspect the primordial aspect of the mind if you try to visualize and make things out it's complicating it's becoming fabricated and again it is another uh, how would you say chaining actually another entanglement so please don't do so just look at the object and just there actually there are nine stages mentioned in the teachings to develop the one pointed concentration but this that it starts with the first one you look at the object and maybe it will stay on the object stay focused on the object for i don't know one second maybe for the beginners for some maybe it will stay one hour so it doesn't matter but you know you have to be consistent you have to do then when the mind wanders you have to be mindful then you you bring back the mind to the focal point the point of concentration again and you didn't do it 10 times then rest just rest then you again do it then after some time you get used to it. then there's many things happening you know in the first series of presentations i mentioned about the stages of the result so there are temporary results and the ultimate result so temporary result happen you know just as you begin to do the practice so for example when you sit and look at the object then your mind will not stay there your mind will go everywhere and is wandering here and there so that is that is the first actually the result so result as i said is is you are not making anything it's always there but there you are beginning to to recognize the result there which is already there it's been there all the time so what's happening is that mind is going everywhere so that is the first result is called the experience the experience of movement so the mind is moving here and there so you can you know it's almost uncontrollable but slowly you have to bring back and after some time after a while you get used to and then you will be able to focus on the the object for a certain amount of time you know without getting distracted by any other thoughts thought patterns so that is called the that is that leads to the the second level of experience the result so there are five actually in the shamatha meditation as also in the other meditation as well it applies in the other meditation the other form of meditation as well so once you develop that 
once you develop that, what happens is through that you are able to settle your mind. So you have not yet, you know, even if you have attained perfection in this meditation, you have not uprooted emotions. Our ultimate aim is to uproot the emotions completely. Emotions are not uprooted because they're there, settled as a sediment. So, you know, when you uh, want to, how to say, make the water clean, you know, then sedimentation, through sedimentation, then the sediments settle down, you know, the, all the particles and all, they settle down at the bottom. So the upper part is clean. But it doesn't mean that the sediments are not there. So any condition can cause this, you know, stir up the emotions again. So <clears throat> it's like, you know, if you bring a stick and stir the sedimentation, then sediments, then they, the water will become murky again, you know, muddy again. So it's like that, but settled. Then after that, what you do is then you try to discern the phenomena and apply the the second form of meditation, the second method, the more advanced method, which directly connects uh, one to the truth. So the vipassana meditation. So vipassana meditation again, you know, uh, being aware. Main is being aware, being mindful of everything. So being mindful has so many levels. First is to you know applying the mind, you know, you really apply the mind and then it's kind of a, how would you say, uh, effort, using the effort to be mindful. But after some time, then the mindfulness or the awareness becomes effortless. Then when it becomes fully, you know, when you develop the complete or the perfect effortless awareness, and that is the that is realization or nirvana basically. Then you are able to see the truth. You are able to connect to the truth directly. Then you experience the truth basically. Then at that point, the emotions will be insignificant. They they are like burnt seed, burnt seeds. They can, you can't grow burn seeds, even if they're there. They become like that, so emotions. Even if they're there, then they will work in a positive way. So basically, you become immune to all this. So nirvana is beyond extreme, means it can be anywhere. If you're talking about physically, where is nirvana, then it can be anywhere at this very moment. If you realize the truth of the phenomena, you know, that nature, the basic nature of the phenomena here itself, then you have attained nirvana. So you are enlightened. So anyway, we will just, uh, how do you do it when these emotions happen? You know, you can do this, the vipassana aspect. Vipassana, actually, you have to first establish the selflessness of a person, selflessness of a phenomena, emptiness, and then you have you will gain 
intellectual understanding, intellectual confidence and conviction in the view, the truth, then you need to rest in that state. That's how it is practiced usually. So practically, one practical thing, because we have emotions, because the, uh, the best and easiest for us to relate is our emotions, you know, the gross emotions. So when the anger, anger is one thing that comes, you know, very easily. So when the strong anger comes, you have to be mindful and vigilant. These are the, like, a, you know, the gatekeepers. And the, uh, these two are the, like, gatekeepers. So keeping watch over everything, <laughs> whatever's happening in the mind. So when this strong anger arises, then you need to uh, discern that, or in other words, analyze. So first you can do analytical meditation, analytical uh, vipassana meditation. When anger arises, you just analyze what is the origin. First the origin, where is the anger has originated from the object. Because if, for the anger to come, I think there should be somebody who makes you angry. So is it from the object? Where? From the body, the mind? Then you also disintegrate the mind. Past mind, future mind, present mind. And what is the present mind? Color, shape, not, not there. But the anger will disappear even before that. So if it does, just you know, rest in that. And over time, this will build up. This is how the Vipassana meditation is done in the Sutra. In the Tibetan form of meditation, the, you know, the, the Tantric meditation, you just look at the object directly. That's one. You, know, you have to be aware. It's more direct, but it's difficult. It's difficult. The elaborations are not applied here. If you read that book, you will find some kind of you know, mention about this kind of meditation. But here, you know, you analyze, and then when you reach to the conclusion, you just rest in that state of conclusion, in conviction or the confidence. Then it might stay for some time, then another emotion will come. You just do the same. That's how you build on. And, you know, it takes quite a bit of time because uh, habits, they don't go away, go away easily. So until the habits are, you know, completely gone, then it will take time. So one day, if you go on doing that, then you arrive at a state, state where you are not affected by emotions. So, you know, the emotions become completely insignificant or com emotions are, you know, they're just neutral. They will become like a, you know, the emotions will become like a thief entering an empty house. So thief entering an empty house, there's nothing to steal. So emotions can't do any damage at all because there's nothing to, you know, cause damage, damage upon. So that's how, you know, just a short <coughs> presentation of the method. Uh, <coughs> then uh, I was supposed to uh,
talk you know, briefly on the action, the behavior. So the discipline, basically, here is the discipline. Because in the, uh, this view, meditation and action are also presented in a, in a different way. As a three trainings, three precepts, three shikshas, basically. The training of discipline, shila. The training of dhyana, samadhi concentration, one-pointed concentration, and then the training of prajna, the wisdom. So that view is basically the training of the prajna. So what we are looking for ultimately is the wisdom. So only through wisdom one can transcend the emotions and the confessions, the problems, everything. Then in order to generate wisdom or actualize the wisdom, then we need to do the meditation, one-pointed meditation, as I mentioned, you know, the shamatha and vipassana meditation. And for this vipassana and shamatha meditation to be, how would you say, vibrant, active, and uh, progressive, then there's this action that supports the meditation. This action, actually action, uh, action, the discipline is basically, if you strictly, you know, talk in terms of the Mahayana, then it's not falling into the extreme. So, falling the middle way. In other words, not becoming purit puritanical, I think puritanical, puritanical and uh, conservative. That is not uh, the, the Buddhist discipline. So the discipline or the action in Buddhism is whatever that helps or supports the meditation practice that uh, takes one to the wisdom. So there is this discipline of not harming others is one thing. Not harming others. The shila paramit, the shila. Shila is uh, uh, being, I think, being uh, humble, modest, being cool, because this shila has a discipline, has a cooling effect, <coughs> cooling effect. Because once you have the discipline, then discipline means not harming others physically or intentionally then it brings, you know, peace to everybody, not just oneself, also others. So that's why it has this cooling effect. So it's just, you know, refreshing, or how to say, uh, relief, basically, there's this relief factor. <laughs> So the action actually, what first then is to refrain from harming others and try as much as to do good actually. That is the, uh, with good intention. When we say do good, then good means doing with good intention, pure intention, pure mind, 
pure motivation. If you do things with pure motivation, seemingly, you know, bad action. I can tell you a story from the Buddha, actually. It's, it, it happened in the Buddha's previous life, because we believe in reincarnation. And we believe that before Buddha Shakyamuni became, uh, you know, a Buddha, then he had, you know, 500 different forms of, he had taken 500 different forms of life. And in one life, he was born as a, you know, sailor the sea captain, the boat captain, basically in those days, I don't know whether there was a, in a ship or not, but in a sea, the boat sailor. And they went into the ocean to, I think they were merchants to find this for business. And that basically we believe in, in, in the traditional text, you know, they go into the ocean and then they go to the treasure island to find treasure, gold, you know. So there were 500 of them in, in the boat. So they went there and there was one, you know, bad person. So he wanted to have all the gold for himself and he wanted to kill everybody in order to have the gold for himself. So somehow that sailor came to know about that and uh, he thought that it would be a terrible you know, consequence for the killer. So he sacrificed himself. Okay, I will bear the consequence even if I go to hell for this. As a result of this action, doesn't matter, I'm just one. So you know, 500 people will be killed is a you know, terrible thing to happen. And then, as a result, the killer might go to hell and suffer a lot. So he killed, you know, killed that, killed that person. So, you know, the action here, the action seems really, you know, the bad, evil, but the intention is pure. But it has to be really pure. There shouldn't be an aorta of you know, an atom of selfishness in there. If there is a, an atom of selfishness in the action, then in selfishness in your intention, when you do this kind of, you know, when you engage in this kind of, commit this kind of actions, then gone, everything is gone, everything is ruined, everything rots. So, what I'm saying is that if you can have that the purest intention, then <coughs> these actions are allowed for the benefit. If it benefits the other, if that benefits the other, not one, oneself. But if it is just for the benefit of oneself, it is always good to refrain from and do good things have good intention, then to easier things, it's much more difficult. I think I will also, uh, in, the, in the retreat, I will mention that because, you know, in order to go to that extreme, one needs to attain certain level of realization.
Otherwise, then if there is selfishness, selfish desire, then it doesn't work. Then it brings, uh, uh, how would you say, it is uh, really, it destroys one's, oneself. It's a big destruction to oneself. So, uh, I think doing things out of good intention is the action that support. And what is important is not to, not to, how to say, make a big deal. Because our habit is that you know, when we are able to do some good things, and we, we tend to compare with others and feel proud about what we do, that also ruins our actions. So basically what we see in the, in the Buddhism is merit. You know, we need to accumulate merit. Then merit is accumulated through doing good things, not through bad things. So the, the root of good, the enlightened, will be destroyed if we do evil things. So virtue, we need to do virtuous things, the virtue. That is the action. Then just if you do the elaboration, you know, then if you, you know, how to say, go into the detail, then there's this you know, becoming a monk and so on, you know, receiving ordination and these are, I think, uh, these are the details, but basically not to harm others intentionally or physically. And in addition to, do, to that, do good and work towards understanding the mind and bringing the mind under control. So that is the teaching of the Buddha. That is the practice of the Buddha's teachings. So that will lead to the understanding of the truth. So I think uh, that's all for from my side. And if you have questions. Uh, yes. Actually, in Buddhism, compassion without emotion is considered the, the supreme, most reliable, supreme, and uh, inexhaustible kind of compassion. There are three different kinds of compassion I mentioned last night. Uh, one is, uh, you know, the compassion, the general compassion, the emotional compassion. So compassion for the beings who are suffering, who are going through difficult times. And compassion, basically, just by definition, compassion is the wish that you understand the difficulty and the problem of a, an other being, and the, you wish, really wish that this being be freed from the suffering. That is compassion. <clears throat> Not just the, from the suffering, the cause of suffering. That is more important than just suffering, the cause of somebody, suffering. So basically that the other being, wishing that the other beings be freed from the suffering and the cause of suffering, the emotions. Basically what you are wishing is that they gain wisdom. So yes. So the second kind of compassion is uh, understanding that, you know, that things are not uh, permanent, they're moving, they're like a mirage. So they're illusory. And 
we believe in Buddhism, we believe that if you have that kind of understanding, then your compassion towards others will be, you know, even more grand. And then the third compassion, the supreme compassion, is a non-dual compassion. There's no reference at all. There's no object of compassion. Because there's no duality, because we are talking about the, the basic nature of things. That when you understand the basic nature of things, you are all pervasive. If necessary, then through, you know, actually the, the beings also, that the audience also need to have some kind of a conditions, causes and conditions to benefit from that compassion. So if there is this causes and conditions, and through the ripening of the aspiration, the Buddhas make, when they are in the path of training, you know, when they are not enlightened, then the, the physical, you know, the manifestation of that compassion appears and does things. I was going to mention this actually, that in Buddhism, the strict, in the, the higher form of, you know, uh, the teachings in Buddhism, it is believed that Shakyamuni Buddha, who was born in Nepal, Lumbini, and got enlightened, you know, attained enlightenment underneath the Bodhi tree in Magadha and turned the wheel of Dharma in, few, in many different places and passed into Parinirvana in Kushinagar was just the expression, the manifestation of that compassion, that ultimate compassion. When it comes to compassionate when it comes to compassionate thoughts, uh, will the action also include some, uh, doing something about it uh, beyond uh, just meditating? Like um, when you see suffering of animals, for example, um, like going and doing something about it, but there is so much suffering around us every day we pass through it. So, um, what what do we do? Like sometimes we see, but then there are things that we can do, but yet we don't do. And every I see everybody doing the same as well. But then we we prioritize our life based on work and, and, and our schedule more than being having compassionate thoughts or having compassionate loving actions towards beings around us. Actually, that's what I was mentioning, you know, that's why the, the third compassion is the supreme compassion, you know, supreme compassion, because, you know, the first and the second kind of compassion is kind of limited. You can do to only as much as you can, you know, it's just to the extent of your ability. So what you need to do is, why you need to have that is, because the first and first compassion especially is also based on, you know, expectation. You know, that is the emotional compassion, so expectation. You expect to help everybody and through that compassion it works, it benefits, but there is a chance of you becoming the victim of that compassion because then you expect, you know, there's the other person is very, how would I say, going through difficult times, so you try to help, not just have the intention to help, but you also go and help. So compassion is not just about thinking, you know, 
intending to help, just to feel pity, it's not like that. You can, as much as possible, go and work and, you know, benefit the other, help others. But when you are not able to help fully, because the problems, they come again and again, it's not just once. So you, you won't be able to do it for all. With that kind of compassion, it is limited. It's time-bound. So that's why I was saying, you know, that the third kind of compassion, you need to have this. Because there, you do whatever you can, there's no expectation. You don't expect. You do whatever you can, however much you can. Then if you're not able to do it, and sometimes even if you do, the other person, you know, the other being does not improve. For example, like drug addicts, alcoholics, for example, just, just giving an example actually. And, you know, they don't improve sometimes, they relapse, they go back to, then you get disturbed, you know, disappointed because of the expectation. So if you have that, that the third kind of compassion, the non-dual compassion, non-expect, you know, non-dual compassion is not having expectation, there's no emotional, you know, uh, interference. So there's no emotional element in there. So if you have that kind of emotion, then you can work better, and then you are not affected. And then you have this energy to work more and more. But otherwise, with the, the first kind of compassion, then you get, you know, disappointed, and then you feel, you know, that you don't want to do it anymore, you know, when it doesn't work. Kandula, um, while uh, working on uh, the anger emotion, you were mentioning that uh, we observe that where the anger is coming from. So it's coming from the subjective mind. And then we also analyze that it's coming from the present mind, not from the past or future. And then by the time you know this happens, the anger has already gone. So sometimes when you are in that situation, you know, wherein you get a get a situation wherein you feel angry or you feel irritated, by the time you could do this analysis, uh, uh, the anger and irritation has already overpowered you, and you might have actioned or you have expressed the anger or not expressed the anger, but uh, how do you help yourself in that situation or? when we are doing our meditation later? No, uh, actually, we, yeah. How do we actually that's work good. on the yeah, anger? Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, now, we are talking about the habit anyway, mm -hmm. the built-up habit. The habit is so strong that it's even difficult for us to recognize the anger, that habit, in the first place. So that's why there's the, the, the question you know, the factor of, that factor of uh, training, you know, in mindfulness, being mindful, vigilant about how the state of em emotion is. And uh, then you have to keep vigil over your mind. So if you have that, if you practice that, that is practiced through sitting. And it's like sharpening, you know, sharpening your, you know, sharpening the sword in order to cut. So your mind becomes sharp when you, you know, do the meditation. And if you train in mindfulness, 
then when this anger arises, then you will be able to recognize, to know that it's arising, the moment it arises. But at the moment we are not even able to recognize that. But I think we have to do with, you know, the superficial meditation and make aspiration that I will be able to do that. But even actually regretting after sometimes is a good enough. It's good enough. It's a good beginning actually. But there are some people that, you know, they don't even regret after having, you know, caused enormous, unbelievable damage. But through meditation, you will be able to recognize that and will be able to work on that. At the, at the, we are at the, at the beginning, it's just starting here. So I think uh, we need to work on that. You can't apply, you know, this intellectual knowledge sometimes is blunt. You have to do the practical, you know. The, the purpose of study is to apply the knowledge to practice. So we have this, you know, the wisdom of hearing, wisdom of, you know, study, education. Education is not, I think, education is not just study. It's also like research, you know, research, contemplation. And also the meditation practice is also a study. It's just training. It's shiksha, laba, in Tibetan. I think we have to do that, otherwise, uh, then if we expect to be able to you know, apply uh, immediately, I think it's a little bit, I think, too early, I think so. <laughs> we need to make effort. We need to make effort. Although I'm talking, it's the same with me. When emotions happen, it happens, that's all. Then I remember after some time, that's all. It's like that. <clears throat> that's why this, you know, the retreat, retreat practice is important. The retreat, just to first. Actually, in the Buddhist path, there are three, three levels or the three stages of the Buddhist method. One is called the Pang. Pang is the abandon, abandoning abandoning the emotions. So abandoning is, how you can do is just run away from the problems. That's one, you know, for the beginners it works better. Then there is the Nyin. Second is Nyin. Nyin is the applying antidote. For example, if you have anger, then you apply this antidote of compassion, loving-kindness, and uh, as I said, you know, now, you know, when you have that kind of, if you can remember and recognize, you can apply this analytical meditation, you know, analysis. So that you can do. That's one kind of contemplation. And then the third one is more advanced, to transform the emotions. Because when you, you have to really train in that, the moment, it, you know, thoughts happen, because emotions come after thought. Emotions are the, like, the fully blown up in the form of thought. You have to recognize and realize just as the thought arises, so that they don't multiply, you know, they don't add up. 
So this thought does not breathe many thoughts. Actually, you know, that emotion or the, you know, the, like anger is like, you know, this much thought, this much amount of thought. Thought is like an atom, you know. So if you can recognize at that stage, then there's no emotion at all, actually. Emotion will never happen. There's no chance for that emotion to happen. But that is difficult. But even if you can recognize when this, there is this fully blown up, you know, blown out emotion, that is also good enough. That is good enough. For a beginner like us. Kenpula, um, I just wanted to ask, uh, how, how do you make an aspiration? Is there a particular way of doing that? Aspiration? So the other day... Yeah, aspiration so is, uh, you need to understand the reality, truth first, you know, truth. And aspiration is also the method, the path, okay? So you, you understand the truth, that all compounded things are impermanent, and all emotions are pain, things are devoid of self, or you know, it's uh, empty in nature. So not understanding that things are impermanent and that these impermanent things are empty of nature, then that leads to the ignorance. Ignorance brings emotions. Emotions bring problems, difficulties. So the aspiration you make is that all beings understand the truth so that they will be free from the emotions, the misunderstanding the delusion. That is the aspiration, basically. And dedication is also in the similar. Then you, you can also make temporary uh, aspiration, aspirations to achieve, you know, attain temporary benefits. Good health, you know, long life, good health, prosperous, harmony, understanding, everything. In world peace. This is a big thing, world peace. All. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, that is also aspiration, but I think we need to, I think, go beyond that as a practitioner. As somebody who who knows about spirituality, I think uh, a little bit more, you know. Like you mentioned, we need to move uh, away from emotions, so is it about moving away from the positive ones as well? Like if we are talking about the antidote, if we love someone like our mother, for example, our beloved, so what do we do? Well, what's the antidote if you want to detach, suppose, for example, by that principle, if you want to detach the love for the mother, so what do you do? Do we hate her or we low, lower down the love for her? What do we do? I mean, in that context, I want to understand that. That is a very good question. And I think it makes me think about you know, how to answer the, your question. It's good, actually. You know, when we say apply antidote, you know, you love your 
love your mother, since it is a constructive love, love, and for the time being, why can't you apply compassion to that? You understand? Compassion towards mother? Yeah. Or? Yeah, yeah, compassion towards mother. Compassion is not about attachment. Okay. Then your life and love, love will transform and become a more grander kind of love. Yeah, there are so many different ways of, you know, depending on the situation to apply the antidote. It's not fixed. It's flexible. Destructive, you know, you should run away. That means you know, destructive emotions, destructive causes and conditions for emotions that run away. So to, to go into the retreat, or for example, you know, if you have really strong desire, then take the monk vow or the nun's vow. That's how it is done. It is you know, in the teaching, in the Buddhist teaching. For those who can balance, then there's no extreme at all. Extreme is never taught in Buddhism, anyway. Even in the even in the Vinaya, this is about discipline. You know, discipline is kind of a really you know, being pure, perfect. But even there, the extreme is not allowed. For those who are really indulgent and attached to the things, then yes, then minimize everything. But if those who are not attached, you know, that's less attachment they can also have the, the, the enjoyments as well. So there's this balance. Yes. Yeah, emotion is coming from not understanding the truth. Any thought, any uh, the, any kind of consciousness, the mind, the subjective mind, that arises from the uh, that, from not understanding the truth. That's called the ignorance, the basic ignorance. That is called the in emotions. Then the emotions can be destructive or the constructive emotions. But still, even if it is constructive emotions, it is pain. Ultimately, though. So can there be a love which is not coming from ignorance? 
if you have that understanding of the truth, yes. If you have the third kind of, you know, even the second kind of compassion, second and third kind of compassion, yes. Loving kindness, therefore immeasurables, you know, the boundless thoughts in the practice. Uh, first is the loving kindness, uh, metta, I think, metta, loving kindness, jamba. That is wishing others to be happy. That is love, actually, in the, according to Buddhist teachings. The wishing others to be happy and have the causes and conditions to be happy. Still an emotion, still an emotion, still an emotion, still an emotion, but to have the inexhaustible, unchanging kind of compassion and loving kindness, you have to go beyond that. That's what I was mentioning about the third kind of compassion is the similar. So first one is the Second is compassion, third is the joy, compassionate joy. So you're, you rejoice. You're happy when others are happy. That is more more of a you know the the bodhisattva practice actually, mainly in the second turning of the wheel of dharma. And then fourth is the equanimity. There's equanimity. Without equanimity, then you can't have compassion. You know, compassion should be equal for all. as a bodhisattva, I mean. So the first compassion, second compassion, it's very difficult. Mainly the first compassion, it is very difficult to have a same kind of compassion towards everybody. So, uh, like when we, when we uh, get to meet people and um, if someone is having concerns or is unable to understand what is their concerns. Uh, when you try to understand them through, uh, as an example, like if there's a concern through breathing or if there's a concern through eating habits or whether there's a concern through moving, uh, personal relationships, understanding, uh, or finding a meaning. Uh, and through this way, uh, we try to understand how the person can transcend or get a better meaning of, probably if I understand correctly, move towards compassion. Um, what would be your comment on, what would you, uh, I mean, if I was to understand from you, would this be a correct way to guide them through specific directions? Um, yes, any method with good motivation, good intention, I said in the beginning, yes, good intention, yes, any method you you use with good intention will bring benefit, yes. So wouldn't it be like, um, because if I would give them a particular direction, I'm actually bringing them away from compassion because I'm uh, connecting or linking them with physical realities? and I'm taking them away from the emotional... No, you have to slowly, you know, tune them to the, you know, bring them to the compassion, you know, the different levels of compassion. Basically, ultimately, to you know, take them, you know, lead them to wisdom. That is the aim. 
in Buddhism. You know, the primary aim, the ultimate aim is that to lead to the truth. And uh, would this uh, mean what you had said was like going from Purusha to Prakriti? Would this relate to this? Uh, yeah, that's how they explain that you're going from Purish to Prakriti. <laughs> You know, Purish disappears. Purish is the, the labeling we have, like the self, you know. So there's suffering and there's world, everything, and the, the conventional world and suffering, samsara, basically. And then, you know, when this Purush disappears, dissolve into the, the ultimate, you know, inner self, then there's this liberation, I think. Thank you. According to them, according to the, that school. Just doubt to be cleared. Is uh, compassion and appreciation is a similar uh, merit or wishes? Uh, if it is uh, appreciation is also important, then why it is not discussed like a compassion? Most of the time when we talk about the uh, emotion, Buddhism the compassion naturally comes out, but we forgot to discuss about appreciation. If appreciation is important, can you just let us know a little bit about how it is I think also uh, appreciation, appreciation is the, you know, you have a big group. Here we have a gathering. So I am part of the gathering. So I think in Buddhism, we talk about the gathering. So that means I'm also included in the in that particular gathering. Is this all similar? I think you know appreciation is included in the compassion. That whole compassion. There's for immeasurable thoughts. Even if it's not compassion, there's loving kindness. There's this you know joy, joy of joy about you know feeling joyful about whatever others is doing. Others are doing. That is appreciation. Yes. So these are included there. These are, these are the components in that, you know, the compassion, loving kindness, compassionate joy, equanimity. Yeah, this is already there. Correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of that all emotion is pain is because of the attachment to the emotion. Because if you are swayed by the emotion of love, you are also likely to be upset by the emotion of anger. So if you are not swayed by the emotion of love, then, then you are not likely to be upset by the emotion of anger. So it is the attachment to the emotion which is which makes the emotion painful and soft, uh, full of suffering. So if you can detach yourself from the emotion, from, from that attachment, I think that is that is what uh, the teaching is all about. Yeah, yeah, if you're attached to the emotions. If you're attached to the emotions, if you make a big deal about the emotions. Actually, if you're not attached to the emotions, actually it's not even the emotions, you know. Yes. It's not even emotion if you're not attached. It is wisdom. Yeah, emotion, you know, free from attachment is wisdom. That you will hear in a different, you know, in a different context. 
but here we just you know it's that for the beginners how we present here so we often make the mistake or get into the fallacy of the thing that is emotion or the emotion of love is a good emotion to have and to get swayed by that thing is good but then we don't understand the flip side of it that the emotion of anger when we are uh, sucked in by the emotion of love and are overwhelmed by it we are also likely to be affected by the emotion of anger because we are attaching ourselves to it yeah yeah that is why yeah yeah so both forms yeah yeah both forms are suffering because you as long as you have attachments you know because there is this there's the there's this factor of change you know the first point all compounded things are impermanent there's this you know bring change is uh, suffering so Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. That's yeah. But you can still have that love. But if you have, you know, if you think that 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 will change at some point, but if you want to make it not change, you know, you know, sustainable. I think sustainable. Then you can apply this. You know, the compassion, understanding of uh, dependent arising. There are so many techniques to do that, to have a sustained love and compassion towards parents. It is the first thing that comes in the Buddhist teaching. 
And sometimes it's, it's difficult because some people they go through, you know, then then parents are abusive, and it's very difficult to convince them. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, when we talk about the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, he never said that he is uh, some kind of a heavenly figure. He never said that because he said that he is just a you know guide. He was a human being. He was a guide. That's all. Actually, it's a guide is a role, you know, exemplary. Who is a role model? I think role model. I think is is that's the one who can, you know, emulate the thoughts, actions, whatever the person does. You know. So he was a teacher, and he categorically said that, and he was just speaking the truth. He's you know teaching you the truth and the methods to get to get to the truth. Other than that, I can't do anything. You have to work yourself. That's what he said. That means it says that we have that potential. We have that innate potential to do that. That's so everybody, we all can aspire that and work towards that. So who succeeds first will depend on the amount of effort and energy one puts on puts on to that. Okay, I think uh, uh, we can end the session for tonight and so see you maybe tomorrow evening again, <laughs> some of you. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, please. Thank you.